0: get ready to laugh out loud at the tribeca festival june 5th to june 16th in nyc experience hilarious talks comedy specials and feel-good films with your fan favorite comedians like hannah einbinder judd apatow neil patrick harris take Nataro, and more you have to be there get your tickets now at tribecafilm.com did you know the tribeca festival showcases more than just film and tv Hello, welcome to The Ezra Klein Show, a podcast on the Vox Media Podcast Network, an exciting new podcast network. We should check out all the shows. Uh, I am really excited about this particular episode. Anna Sale is the host of WNYC's Deaf, Sex, and Money, which is, for my money, maybe the best podcast going today. It is a sort of beautiful, very human, very decent, very deep look at how we actually live our lives. I've been thinking a lot about "Death, Sex, and Money and the way Anna approaches her work, because I think this has been a moment in politics. It has been pretty devoid of humanity and been pretty devoid for all our talk of empathy. The empathy tends to be weaponized. It tends to be used as a blackmail device. It has been devoid, I think, of real empathy, of real desire to understand how each other are living. Um, I was stoked Anna came on the podcast. And also I learned a lot I didn't know about her, like that she had been a political reporter before she came to this. So we had a great conversation about that. We talked about what she would bring to, to political reporting today if she did it. We talked about how she thinks about her interviews. How she prepares for them Before we jump into it A couple quick plugs Check out our Facebook group For The Weeds My other podcast On the Vox Media Podcast Network Uh, You can find that At facebook.com Slash group Slash The Weeds uh, and you should check out I Think You're Interesting by Todd Vanderwerf. He is Vox's critic at large. Uh, he's doing a great long-form interview show where he talks to interesting people in the culture. This week, he did not talk to someone interesting in the culture. He spoke to me about my uh, cultural favorites. We talked about the things I actually like to consume and read and watch. Uh, so if you want to know more about what I do in my off time, you should go check out my podcast with Todd on I Think You're Interesting. All that said, here is Anna Saleh. Anna Sale, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's an extraordinary pleasure to have you here. I am such a fan of your podcast.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: You know, and when I was researching you to, to do this interview, I found out something I didn't know, which is that before you started Dust, Sex, and Money, you were a political reporter. Yes. What were you like as a political reporter?
1: Um, there's this image that I think of because it, it's something that like came up after I had transitioned do you remember the, the documentary Wiener that came out I do. Last it is summer? an
0: amazing documentary.
1: Yeah. So there's a scene that's the press conference when Anthony Wiener and Huma Abedin are discussing the second sexting revelations in the course of Wiener's mayoral campaign. And what I remember about that press conference is it was just, you know, every single reporter who covered city politics and state politics and national politics who was in New York City was in that room. And they took a few questions, but they were sort of timeline questions. It was like, when did you sext this and when did you sext that? Because you said you'd stop sexting and all these things. And I, there's a scene in the the documentary where Anthony Weiner and Whom Abedin are beginning to exit the press conference, and I have my hand up like a polite public radio reporter, and I have headphones on. I'm sitting on the floor, and I just start shouting, why should we trust your judgment? <laughs> and <laughs> and they look at me, pause, and then turn to walk away, and I just keep shouting that question. And that to me, when I think back about covering politics, is is what I think of. I was never like the most deeply sourced political reporter. I wasn't the best at navigating the the back corridors of state houses or, or City Hall. My approach was always, you know, translating what I was hearing from voters to then trying to get answers from the politicians who we had to interact with. So that's that's the image I remember from covering politics is shouting a question that seemed pretty common sense, um, given that controversy, uh, and getting no answer.
0: <laughs> That's such a wonderful scene in which to start this conversation, though, because I think of the hallmark of, of your work now as this intense empathy for, for other people's humanity and this, this generosity towards, I think, what people would often see as folks' flaws and their their failures, the things they are embarrassed of or afraid of. And political coverage so deeply tends to take the literal opposite yeah. approach. Yes, <laughs> and, and Wiener is such a fascinating example of that because he has become, and I think even really, if you watch the the documentary about him, there is something one dimensional there. There is something inaccessible there, and there is not a desire, I think, on the part of many people at all, to think sympathetically about what what might lead him to be doing this, because you know, as you say, you know, his job is to have good judgment but but i'm curious how you how you navigated that because even that yelling why should we trust you it feels different than the project of understanding and nuance that i often associate you with now
1: I, I know it's funny. My When my producer saw the documentary, she like came in the next day and said she and her husband were laughing that like what would happen if I shouted that question during a Death, Sex and Money interview? <laughs> um, because it is very different. Uh, but I I think that it's the same impulse. Like when I'm doing a Death, Sex and Money interview, I am approaching the interview like I approached um, talking to people who were not in power when I was covering politics. So people who were voters, people who were going to be affected by policy changes. And I saw my interviews with politicians as, you know, the opportunity to stick the microphone in the face of the person who did have power. So it was a different tone. And there are people on Death, Sex and Money who have a lot of power. Um, But, you know, it's not an accountability interview. It's more an exploration of the motivations and factors behind major life decisions so it doesn't have the same combative
0: approach. The the word power is a great one to bring in here because I think that that has such a transformative effect on a on a journalist. And mm-hmm. in a way that that I believe in, I mean I went into this profession, the idea of afflicting the powerful, you know, holding holding power to account, it, it's a very, very present and pervasive idea. And yet I wonder sometimes in my own interviews with people who are powerful, whether that approach, that orientation, that social pressure actually from my own uh, community makes it harder to come to places of of understanding. That the powerful in some ways are often just as afraid, sometimes much more afraid, than the not as powerful. And to the extent that we are trying to understand why they're doing what they're doing and how they're doing it – I often wonder whether we allow these questions that are sort of superficially uncomfortable, these rapid fire, you mm-hmm. know, five years ago you said this, but now you're saying this, to obscure the kinds of questions that would give us an understanding that's a little bit deeper of why yeah. they do what they do and why things turn out the way they do.
1: Yeah. And that's harder to do, you know, when I, if I think about the current press briefings for example like it's not an environment where you're going to get some some <laughs> real sincere answers about you know really trying to weigh difficult options and weighing trade-offs and trying to come up with the best solution of bad options like you're not going to get that kind of honesty and that's just where we are in terms of both um what politicians will tell us and and the kinds of questions that political journalists now are trained to try to get. You know, you you look like a sort of hard-charging political journalist now if you say, but aren't you going to run for president in four years? You know, and it's like he's not going to say he's going to run for president in four years. Like, he's not going to say that until, you know, whatever. Like, it's appropriate to start raising money. But we ask these questions that we don't think we're going to, you know, we know we're not going to get the honest answer. But um, yeah, so uh, so it, it – but but the consequence of that is that you lose – the very real reality that, you know, all these reporters and all of these administration officials and legislators and lawmakers, like they all are all human and they're motivated by uh, a lot of different things, some honorable, some dishonorable, and you're not going to get them to say out loud what they are.
0: (laughs) If you had Anthony Weiner on your show, if he emailed you and said... I've been thinking about that documentary. You're scene made an impact. Uh, I'd like to come on to on Sex and Money. What would you ask him?
1: Um, You know, I don't know if I would want to have him on the show right now. I feel like he's in such, you know, he's in a moment where things seem to be falling apart. Uh, it would be a difficult interview to do right now and, and also thinking about the ethics of it because you want to sort of, you want to, when there's, all the stuff that's happened since that documentary came out in terms of, you know, questions of child welfare and, and all that stuff. Um but but if I didn't have to take that into consideration, um I would just you know, I would just ask every way I could, like, I don't understand how you can be such an intelligent person. Like you are so quick. You're so sharp. You are so articulate. Like I don't understand where where that impulse to rebel comes from like what is why is there that part of you that still behaves like a 12-year-old boy <laughs> to see if he could go there but i'm i'm not sure i'm not sure he can
0: beyond the particularly difficult case of anthony weiner if if death sex and money developed a political spin off in this moment mm. what would it be how would you approach politics right now
1: uh, well, it, that's something um, that I'm thinking about a lot because, in our own way, we do think that we are part of the dialogue of what's happening um, in our country and sort of, you know, around the world in terms of a feeling of alienation from, you know, nation and and a real sense of wondering who gets to feel like they belong and who doesn't. And I feel I. You know, I I do feel like we are in a profound crisis of of not <laughs> not being able to to listen to each other, and I think that that finding the way back to that is not straightforward because there are a lot of for me what I think about I think about like what are the principles and the values of the show and what do we want to lift up, and then what do we under want to understand. And there is that place right now in our politics where someone who feels very different about immigration in this country, like they may have a very different way of understanding and feeling who gets to belong in the U.S. and who gets to work here and who is American. Um, And to me, it's like figuring out how much you want to go there with like a deeply empathetic point of view and how much you want to question that and then where your own judgments and values you know stop you from kind of nodding along to to pull that conversation out more i think of when when i started in public radio one of the things you quickly learn is when someone is talking you don't talk over them because you don't want to talk on the tape so I became an aggressive nodder. (laughs) So so I think of like when I'm trying to draw someone out, it's like you're nodding and you're nodding and you're just trying to indicate like you want to hear more and more and more. And when you are talking about things like race and immigration in our country right now, I feel like uh, that is animating a a large part of what's happening. I I don't know if I wouldn't say a large part, but it's certainly a present part uh, on the right. And so figuring out how much we want to listen to that and how much we want to say we don't we don't want to highlight that and give that a platform is a is a tricky question on the other hand i am from west virginia and i i understand why west virginians are voting the way they're voting right now and i i don't think it's because they're all racist and and i think that there are there is a deep sense of uh economic despair and anxiety and um has been for a long time, but it's more intense than it's been um, because coal is running out. So, so I feel a lot of ways about it.
0: West Virginia is an interesting case of a of a state that I struggle with how to interpret its changes more generously mm-hmm. because <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean that, and I I mean that seriously. It's a uh-huh. state that really had its powerful swing around Obama. I mean, really, really, really went hard against Obama. And, you know, the in some ways I wonder sometimes if folks who are a little bit more liberal, they're very comfortable with the idea that it's economic despair motivating this stuff. But if it was just economic despair, and you know, you can make maybe specific arguments around coal, and I get that. But it is a case that still Obama and 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 also Clinton were we're both politicians offering to do a lot more in terms of trying to make targeted investments and targeted tax cuts and targeted forms of support and make sure there was health care there uh, than, than the other party. And so, you know, there can be this dialogue on the left that it's all motivated by economics, but it doesn't quite have the output you might expect from that. And I'm not saying that means that the movement is because everybody's a racist. I'm not saying that either. But I feel like there's a an answer here that that people on the left are very comfortable with because what it kind of says is they should do more of what they already think they should do. And I'm I'm curious how you think about that, having had a much more textured experience of the place and of its changes yeah. than, than many others.
1: Yeah. I mean, I grew up – I graduated high school in Charleston, West Virginia in 1999. Charleston is the capital, so it's a town of about 50,000 people. And it's I, – I think of my childhood as a very typical suburban American – uh, experience, but but our county, you know, you drove right outside of the city and still in the county, and there's coal mining happening, and and more rural communities for sure. So, with that caveat, like I am, I am, I'm a city person from West Virginia. I'm not from the the rural pockets that are seeing the most despair. But I think I, I was a political reporter in West Virginia in 2008. That I was still at West Virginia Public Radio, and so I was covering the Obama Clinton primary, and I was going to some of the more I was <laughs> I did this one reporting trip down into a you know one of the most democratic uh counties in the state you know where the democratic party had long held power and interviewed people about the democratic primary and they would say right into my microphone all the reasons why they weren't voting for Barack Obama. And it was because, you know, they'd heard he was a Muslim and Bill Clinton. This was interesting. It was at that time, Hillary Clinton was the hero of the West Virginia coalfields, if you'll remember, because it was late in that primary. And they i remember someone told me, like, Bill Clinton was good for West Virginia and he'll help Hillary out. So I'm going to vote for Hillary. Um, and so for sure, for sure, race is a factor. And and race was a factor throughout the Obama presidency and how West Virginians talked about the president. So I think it's this combination. Like, absolutely, Barack Obama was seen as someone who was other. He was not the kind of American that, that grew up in West Virginia communities and was suspect and suspicious and was not thought to represent who they were. And that's... That's racist, you know, in a lot of ways. But I also think that you can't divorce the the energy issues from the other stuff happening in West Virginia politics.
0: There's another piece of that that I think is so interesting and challenging. And and one thing I, I always want to be careful of is that I think this debate can have this sort of dichotomy between either it's economic anxiety, which maybe includes things like energy, or it's racism. And there's just no, there's nothing in between there. You can't have anything more texture than that. And, I, and I want to make sure we don't fall into that. I've been reading this book by two political scientists called Democracy for Realists. And mm. most of the book is about how democracy is a sham, and it's depressing to read. <laughs> but at the end, they sort of put forward a little bit of a new framework for how to think about democracy, and and their framework is really democracy is about group identity. And the particular way in which it's about group identity is not just it's how your group votes, but it's also what the parties think of groups like you, that a lot of how we vote is based on a judgment about what do the political parties, what do political leaders think of us? Mm-hmm. And do they think we are high status or low status? Do yeah. they think we're the real Americans or the fake Americans? You know, do they think that we are do we think to go back to language you have that I think is very powerful? Do they think we belong? And this goes to your point, which I, I take very seriously about possibly the limits of empathy. When empathy stops, disrespect really, I think, begins. Uh that you can respect people you empathize with. But once you get beyond where you can empathize, it it is hard to respect them. But also, if you go too far, if you say, hey, your your opinion that Barack Obama is a Muslim is just as valid as anyone else's, or your opinion that um, (laughs) we're not going to make America great again by having a bunch of Hispanic children in this country is just as valid as any others, I hear where you're coming from. You're validating potentially quite dangerous views. And I I guess – In this long-winding question, I'm curious how you think about the limits of of that empathy.
1: How I think about it is I'm from West Virginia. I spent my maternity leave in Cody, Wyoming in 2016 in the run-up to the presidential election. And I have dear friends who I know voted for Trump in both places. And what I think I want to be a part of doing is trying to get at that place of feeling overlooked and dismissed and stereotyped and disregarded. Uh, That is an overwhelming feeling in a lot of rural communities right now. And I think how to do that well is a question, (laughs) like how to do that. So you're not, I don't know, like you can, you can do it poorly in so many different ways, but that's, that's what I'm, been thinking about, because I think that is what's the sense of these, you know, self-satisfied coastal elites who are determining what's on the cable news channels and the headlines in our newspapers, and they don't understand our lives, and they don't really care because they think our deindustrializing communities are just, you know, part of the march towards progress. Like, there's real resentment there that's, you know, in some ways justified because... I think there is a large sort of thread of self-satisfied smugness that comes from places, you know, where media elites tend to tend to live. So I I don't know how to do that through the vehicle of something like Death, Sex and Money other than to keep doing episodes that go sort of deep and personal and multidimensionally in, on people's lives. like This is not about politics at all. But we did an episode a few weeks ago about two guys in their early 30s who became connected because one of them thought he was the biological father of this little girl and found out he wasn't. And then this other guy found out he was the biological father of this little girl. And this all happened in a college town in the West, not a not a big city, and they it was two men talking about fatherhood and how they dealt with this terrible situation and to me, I was really proud of that episode because it was about masculinity it's about doing the right thing, it's about showing up it's about family and in some ways, I think it's it was nice to do in this political moment
0: you said something in an interview I've been thinking about since I read it and and you said that Since you started Death, Sex, and Money, that something you thought about a lot is moving from traditional hard news to doing stories about the details of people's personal lives and feelings and emotions and the private lives behind public appearances. And and then you said that I've thought a lot about how I really like making the argument that that is also really important journalism. And I was stopped a bit short by that because on some level, it seems so obvious that that's important journalism, that the details of how we live our lives and (laughs) – the most important facets of our lives. Of course that matters. And yet I cannot think of a single, say, magazine that just flatly is about how people live their lives. Yeah. Why do you think and how do you think that became such a huge swath of human experience became not really journalistically valued?
1: Well, I think it has to do with gender. Like when I... (laughs) When I transitioned from being a political reporter to a person who, who did personal stories, part of my kind of identity crisis, professional identity crisis around it was like, oh, my God, I'm going to lose respect from all these hard-nosed political journalists men who I've been trying to show that I can, like, run with the big boys, and I'm going to go do style section profiles, <laughs> you know, and I just was like, is this okay? Like, do I feel okay that this is how my career will now be perceived um, by some people? Because I think its roots are, like, if you if you ask people, you know, what do you do for child care while you're doing what you're doing out in the world? If you ask people, um, you know, do you have a joint checking account with your wife or not? Like, that that gets into the private sphere, which is domestic, which is the zone of historically, you know, women. It's not the public sphere. It's not important. Um, So I think that this is I think I think valuing the details of our personal lives and saying, you know, these are these are important choices we're making is is feminist. And I also think, you know, at the same time, it's like totally in line with what every sermon at mainline Protestant churches like you go to church and you hear about, you know, what are the personal choices you're making about death, sex and money, basically. Um, So it's both kind of timeless and the most important stuff. But the media, you know, has has not come around to to valuing it.
0: There is, you know, it's interesting about the style section, because I was trying to think about what are the precedents for this kind of journalism and and the style section. uh, I worked at The Washington Post and one of the real points of pride at that newspaper is they invented the style section. Hmm. And that was where they did profiles of Henry Kissinger. That was what that was. Yeah. It was a, a section to be about the personal lives of powerful people. And it's evolved from that, of course, but but it's still it's it's not that it's not that personal. It's not that human. It's where you put trend stories and fashion stories, but it's not usually just about the human experience. And then I thought that the the other thing that is closest, but also really far, is self help. Mm-hmm. Or maybe not even self help, but advice, life hacking. That there is a space within Journalism within newspapers traditionally for people to you know hear about the latest research on how to find a partner or to mm-hmm. write into some therapist or psychologist or credentialed journalistic expert and tell them about their, their marital woes. But that too has this kind of solutionism embedded in it. And something I think is interesting about what you're doing is that there's no solutionism in it. I listened to that story about the the two men who had had that paternity – mix up, I guess. And there was no solution there. It was just, this is what they went through and how they thought about it while they went through it and how they felt now that they had gone through it. And, and I think in an interesting way, one of the really unusual pieces of death, sex, and money is you leave it there. It's mm. not about drawing out a lesson. Was that conscious? Is that to you an innovation? Or was there something you were building on there that maybe I'm not seeing?
1: Let's see. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure I didn't invent that idea, but it was it is certainly conscious to not have neat, tidy conclusions and, you know, morals and life lesson that you can take to the bank at the end of each episode, because I think our editorial point of view is that this stuff is messy and by its nature, unresolved and and evolving so I wanted that to be enough. Like to, to me, the the major driving objective when I started the show was I felt like I needed more models and mentors as I was figuring out life. I felt like there was so much in. Major structural changes in terms of how families were organized, how, you know, the kinds of money that women could earn, the kinds of places that we could choose to live and mobility and timeline of biological clocks like every I mean, this is huge changes have happened over the course of. My lifetime, and I can't, you know, I can look at what the choices my mom made when she was having kids in the late '70s and early '80s, and she had a whole, you know, whole lot of. It was a completely different context in which she was making decisions. So that was the impulse: was I felt like I wanted more company, <laughs> and and he and I wanted to hear more stories about how people had made decisions. So it was it was about addressing that feeling of um, feeling isolated in a personal. Emotional experience, so I I wanted people to be able to listen and to feel like, oh, I'm not the first person to run into this. Like that that was the sort of starting impulse, um, and lots of different things has, have spun out of that. But I think that's really still our uh, one of our things that our listeners come to. We we recently got an email from a woman um, who she just she she'd gotten married and. Three weeks after her wedding, her husband, her new husband, was in a bike accident and was paralyzed. And so they're in this their early marriage, and they're trying to figure out how to deal with a major physical disability um, for him, and and all the emotions that came with that. And she just wrote us an email and said, "Have you done anything about this? Because I don't I don't know anybody who's had to do this before, and it feels really overwhelming and scary and lonely." And I liked that that's what her question was to us. We subsequently reached back out, and, and I've talked to both she and her husband, and, and we're going to put it out as an episode. But that that's why, that's part of why people come to us, which is I'm going through this thing, and I want to hear someone else who has gone through this thing.
0: It's a really interesting language you used at the beginning of, of that answer because you said that your, your initial impulse was to find mentors. Uh-huh. And I think of mentors so much as wrapped up in expertise and authority, right? A mentor beings, you know, somebody who has more credentials than you and is going to teach you, you know, you young cub, how to be a real reporter, you mm-hmm. know, and how to stay up all night on the crime line or whatever it might be. And, you know, a lot of what uh, it seems to me that the show maybe evolved into is not so much how to do this, but you're not alone in this. Mm-hmm which is, it seems to me, and tell me if you think this is wrong, that, that that seems like a different vision of what people need. Not that they need a guide, but as you put it later on, that they just need company. They need to know there's there are other people who have gone through this and are going through it.
1: Yeah. I mean, because I don't believe that someone can tell you what to do when you ask them, what should I do? <laughs> like, I don't believe that's actually how life works. I think you you want that like that's that's the that's the emotional need. But then it it also can it can be filled by just someone saying, like, this is a hard thing you are going through. I have gone through something similar and you have to go through it and you're going to learn the lessons that come to you through by going through it. Like another sort of idea in the show is that, like, when it comes to death, sex and money, like none of us are going to be able to navigate our way around hard stuff. So it's worth kind of sitting sitting with what happens when that hard stuff
0: hits you. did the show, putting aside the degree to which it worked for the audience, did it work for you? Did it give you that feeling of having a little bit more guidance and a little bit more navigation through that period in your life?
1: Yeah, and it's still helping <laughs> the thing that I think I think like I started the show. When I started the show, I was unmarried, living in New York, um, transitioning out of being a a newsroom reporter, and now I'm married with a kid living in California and being the host of this show. So there's a lot that has just completely turned over in my life um, in the last three years over the course of the show, and with each thing that gets tilled up – Come a whole new set of anxieties and worries that I need to work through by interviewing people. So, yeah, I, I I think it it helped me in terms of, you know, feeling less alone. And it also allowed me in ways I don't think I even was aware of with, you know, what feeds me as a journalist is that feeling of like getting to that deep place of connection in an interview like that that is what i love to do um and and so to be able to align what my job is with with that has been just really amazing because i think that's what i was kind of searching for when i was covering news or cover you know i would cover would cover state houses. And then I would like, you know, pitch a story about an old bluegrass musician in West Virginia, because I wanted to talk to a guy about life, you know, and and I would intermix those kinds of stories. um, But to get to just do exactly the kinds of stories that I like to do as my job is totally satisfying. And and I think has helped with that itch of that sense of like, do I really know what I'm doing?
0: You know, Tell, tell me how you get to that point of connection when you are Preparing for an interview, not with someone well known, but somebody who's not well known, so you can't just go and Google search them and read their past interviews and and take the easy way out. What do you do to get ready to have that conversation?
1: Um, I work with producers, and they they will do pre-interviews so that we make sure that we have. I think it's important when I'm preparing to have a a rough sense of the timeline and the arc of someone's life, so that I can figure out where are the moments of transitions and pivots cuz that's where i want to focus the conversation. So it's figuring out it's like basically writing a timeline of this person was born, at this point this is when they got married, this is when they moved, this is when they did this, this is when they did this. And then i try to think like where are the moments to drill in? Where are the moments where i want to know like what was that like? You know, how did they deal with that? Um and then the conversation itself like once I'm sort of prepared with the arc that I imagine I want the conversation to be. Like once you're in in front of someone or, or talking to someone remotely, like I, I tell people what the show is. I tell them that, that it's edited. I tell them if I ask something they don't want to answer, they don't have to answer it. And I tell them that how the show works and what the show is about. And that I'm going to ask personal questions and it's not to be gratuitous or exploitive, but to get at this idea that this is stuff we all go through. So I sort of explain that. And I think that that helps perhaps, I hope, to make people I'm interviewing feel like less nervous and and interested in the idea that we're doing this together, like that I'm going to listen really closely to what they're saying and, and they're going to be able to express something that maybe they haven't talked at length about because it's not something that comes up, you know, at the grocery store. And then it's about listening closely, asking the right follow-up questions. And the way I ask follow-up questions is it's it's a lot of, like, if someone is describing a pivotal moment, but I can't see it, I can't understand exactly, you know, what, what kind of room they were in or, you know, what time of day it was or, or something, I'll, I'll ask them to, like, explain, like... You know, where were you and, and were you alone? Who were you with? So then they, then they will kind of fill out the details of the moment and then you can, as a listener, understand more
0: deeply. You had an interview a couple of weeks ago where there was a moment that actually took my breath away a bit. And it was during your episode, I believe, on breakups. Uh-huh. And there was, a, a, I think, a young man who was going through a divorce. hmm And you were asking him about it, and and he was in clearly a lot of pain. And then you said to him, I'm divorced. Is there anything you'd like to ask me? Mm -hmm. And you almost never hear an interviewer turn the table in that way. In journalism, you're often not supposed to. (laughs) I I don't mean that like you violated the rules. I, I, I mean it that it was such a powerful moment for me as a listener. And I'm curious how you think of your role in those moments, how you think of your role as an actor and a person on the other side of the phone or the other side of the table from people going through these things where you're not just a journalist, but you're also somebody who's gone through these things. You're somebody who believes deeply in the value of knowing people aren't alone. And it seemed at that moment and in others I've heard that there is an impulse in you to to not just be an active listener but to also be an active participant
1: yeah i mean that moment it's, it's funny when you were describing that you know i that was weeks ago and when the, when the episode came out but when you were describing it my, i got tears in my eyes thinking about it um because what i think that moment revealed was you know i remember the tape he's like I was like, "Is there anything you want to ask me?" And he he, he like exhales, like there's this sense of like, oh, "I have so many questions." And and just, sure, he ends up asking me a question that I answer, so I reveal something about myself. But what I remember about that is that it it just so perfectly captured that feeling of when you're in personal crisis and you don't know anyone else who's gone through a similar thing, and how just like. Your life isn't turning out the way you thought it was going to turn out. You don't know if you're doing the right thing or if you're a failure. You don't know, you know, aligning what's happening in your life with the values you thought you were building your life on. Like all of that is is up in the air and it's so scary. <laughs> and, and I remember feeling that. And so to be able to say to someone, like, what do you want to know, like – It was a journalistic question because I was curious, like, what are the things that are that is scaring him in that moment? But also it's um, it was a human response because I can remember, like, when I was getting divorced and it was just like I was just realizing this was going to happen, like. I just started calling people who I, you know, friends of friends who I knew, you know, in passing who had gotten divorced, they'd had an early marriage. And I, you know, that's who I had conversations with because I was like, what happens? How does this work? It was like really comforting to have those people. So I think that's what that moment was about, was about all of that.
0: The, The reason that moment stuck with me so much was how much pain there was in the conversation. Yeah. And a lot of your conversations are like that. Uh, and a lot of your conversations are just hard. Uh, I, one of the ones that has stuck with me is you did an episode on a guy who was a base jumper, I think it was. <laughs> that and was I've, a hard conversation. And I've just never heard somebody who had a death wish quite like that.
1: Yeah, Jeb Corliss, yeah.
0: And I assume to do this work, like, you have to be pretty empathic. How do you vent the pain of all this? How do you leave the conversation with the woman whose husband was paralyzed three weeks after their marriage, or the conversation with the young man who is, you know, it, this is obviously a different level potentially, but but divorcing and, and confused and just go home and have a normal night?
1: Yeah, you know, that's also a question that that like war reporters get, like, how do you deal with the atrocities that you're seeing and and how do you take care of your mental health and and i for me it's not i don't feel i don't leave these interviews thinking like oh my gosh i've just been exposed to so much suffering and um and i feel helpless like i don't i don't feel that i feel when an interview goes well even when it's about something just like terrifying like some weird twist of fate that ended up causing a series of events to occur that that just, you know, made something terrible happen. Uh, e- even when it's an interview like that, if I'm able to feel like there was a period of time where we were like really connecting and talking about the the dimensions of everything that has happened in your life, um, like there's there's part of that that is like really comforting to me <laughs> in, a, in a strange way. I mean, certainly like I'm finding now as a parent of a young baby, like I do have trouble with stories about, you know, healthy babies becoming unhealthy and terrible things happening in families like that. That is something I i don't want to do interviews about right now. But beyond that, I, I find like, I don't know, I find something about like acknowledging the reality of death, that death that affects people's lives. Like I find it. I don't like it's weird. I just want to say the word comforting and I don't know why, but I, I feel like it's like honest. It's like saying like, I know this thing happened to you and probably no one likes to talk to you about it. Cause they don't know how to talk to you about it. And you know,
0: we're going to talk about it. Were you afraid of death growing up?
1: You know, it wasn't like a big thing. Like I, you know, I can remember laying in the backyard, looking at the clouds, talking to my grandmother, um, who had passed away when I was four. So I kind of had an early death experience and, and my parents are both in the medical field. So my, (laughs) my dad, my dad likes to say, you know, um, what's the number one cause of death? Life. (laughs) He's got this West Virginia accent. So, um, you know, it was sort of this like clinical look at, look at death, um, that just like it happens and it's a fact. And, um, but to me, it's like we all know this is happening. We all know like all of our psychodramas about whether we're doing enough or are enough are related to the fact of our mortality. But we don't attach it to that. Um, and so part of the show is about like just trying to be real about like the reason we feel like there are high stakes is because we don't have limitless time. Like let's just acknowledge that.
0: Yeah, that that's such an interesting point uh, because – I don't think that I could have done, um, certainly when I was younger, like I remember the day as a kid that I understood what death was. Mm. That was not a fun day in my household. I do not not envy my parents at that point. And, you know, in my home, you didn't talk about death. And my wife comes from a home where, you know, big Catholic family and they went to the funerals of everyone. Mm -hmm. It's present for her just as a thing that happens in the world. In a way that, for me, you know, I was obsessive compulsive as a kid, and when I heard the word, I had like little mental rituals to wipe out the word. Oh. and it was the pushing it to the side. I think for so long that but what made were the it rituals? so horrifying. Like, what would you do? What when, when I heard the word death, I would say four times in my head, "No death." Oh, I was a very OCD child. Oh. <laughs> not saying I'm not a little OCD now and that came actually it came after my one real experience with death which was when i was young which is my um uncle or i think a granduncle died from aids during the height of the plague hmm. and that was a really searing experience for me and and it it's just an interesting thing because you know that was just it was not a thing in my world um and the more i kind of kept it out to the side i think the bigger it got mm-hmm. Whereas there's an interesting way in which it seems to me that homes and traditions and and people who have more just experience at accepting it doesn't make it, I think, unscary, but it does make it less powerful.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think certainly, like, like it's not death wasn't unspoken in my in my household, my family growing up. But it also wasn't like we didn't sit around and talk about all the emotional dimensions of grief and mourning. And it was just sort of like people die. <laughs> you know? So so I think now my my quest is to be like, but, but God, people die. Like, let's talk more about this. You know, um, I think that's where I'm coming from.
0: Are you religious?
1: Uh, I grew up Unitarian Universalist and uh, I'm not currently regularly going to church, but I still consider myself Unitarian
0: do you, do you believe in God and, and in an afterlife?
1: Uh, do I believe in
0: God and in an afterlife?
1: I think my sense of God is like like I believe in a spiritual dimension that is love. I don't think I believe in, in a all-powerful God who decides what happens to us after we die. I don't think I believe in an afterlife right now. I believe we live on in the people who love us.
0: Because that seems to me to be a place where— where you really fall in that continuum has a very powerful effect on your views on death. Yeah. The Jewish tradition, which is which is mine, it's a little vague on this point. There's a famous quote from, from a very famed rabbi where somebody said, what happens after death? And he said, I'll tell you when I find out, <laughs> which I've always liked. But... I think one one thing you can one thing that often happens, and I know a lot of Jews who are very afraid of death. <laughs> it seems to be a, an important cultural point um, <laughs> going going up to Woody Allen and beyond. <laughs> that if there isn't any structure in which you say, well, maybe maybe that's not the end, right? There's no sort of answer there. Particularly when you're young, it's just a little bit of a dip into the abyss, in a way that takes time to integrate when you're older. Yeah. You mentioned children and terrible things happening to children. But are there topics that you would like to do more of on Death Sex and Money, but you found either personally hard or just journalistically hard to get people to talk about or to find the right stories on which to focus?
1: I want to do a lot more about money. I don't know that it's because we haven't been able to get people to open up about money. I think it's like I'm excited to just keep thinking up new ways to really crack at money. Um, because it is personally that is where my anxiety, my existential dread comes in is is around money and whether I'm making responsible decisions and gonna be safe. Um and I feel like if I'm <laughs> if if this is like the thing that is the ticker tape in my head, like and and I don't talk about it, like I imagine it's the ticker tape in a lot of other people's minds. But I think what is challenging about doing episodes about money is, you know, our our anxiety about money uh, is, you know, there's not that many varieties of feeling anxious about money. It's like, do I have enough or do people think I have earned what I have? Uh, that's pretty much the two varieties. But but to figure out how to tell stories with specificity around money is is tricky because if someone has some money, um, but they feel anxious about it, it's going to sound obnoxious to people who don't have enough who are listening. But I I do think that there's like some really interesting stories, not like beyond, like the only way we talk about money in our culture is, you know, personal finance columns and basically tell people to pay off your credit card debts and save for retirement. And that's not enough. (laughs) So, so, I feel like that is a space that um, we could do some really textured,
0: uh, interesting stories. This is a question you can interpret however you want, but, but who have you come into contact with through the show, or if you want, not through the show, who you have thought really has figured something out about how to live, who has some quality that's a little bit unusual, where they have gotten onto a wavelength or found an equilibrium that you've walked away really admiring.
1: I, the, I Bill Withers is it's the person I think of, the singer-songwriter legend, um, and he was actually the first episode of Death, Sex, and Money. And the reason I say that is because he is someone, I mean, he has the gift of being able to put incredibly powerful, complex emotions into very simple words. That's why he's one of our great songwriters. So there's that that about him. But also he was an enormous success when his first album came out and then it continued to be an enormous success when his second album came out. And then as his career in the music industry developed, like he started to feel like A&R guys were trying to put him in this box or that box because he was a black guy singing songs. And at a certain point, he just said, you know, enough of this. You know, I'm Bill Withers and I'm just going to be Bill Withers and I'm not going to do that many interviews and I'm just going to sit in my house in L.A. and (laughs) live life. And I just feel like he is just so clear on who he is and what matters to him and what his kind of life code is. And also is just generous in how he thinks about people. Um he's kind of a, a both like a crotchety old man and also just like so loving um about what life is. Uh and I just there's a the, the way that episode ends, I ask him like, Well what are you proud of that you've done? and and he just says, you know, I know what the first lines in my obituary are going to be. Like it's, I, I know it's going to be. You wrote this song, this song, this song. Like that's not a mystery. I know how I'm going to be remembered. Um, but then he went on to say, like the thing about life is, y- you are born into the situation you are born into, and what your project is. I'm paraphrasing. He just says, you know, someone told me, do something with yourself. That's what our time here is to do is to do something with yourself based on like what you were born into, what can you do? And then he says, you know, we're all trying to make ourselves interesting because no one came here to hide. And I just love that. I just love that because it's so simple. And also just like, yes, that's what we're all doing. We're scurrying around trying to be interesting trying to get people to hear us and see us and 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 notice us um and that's pretty much what we're doing i just i loved it
0: how did you get bill withers for our first episode